You're listening to a book with legs, a podcast presented by Smead Capital Management. At Smead Capital Management, we advise investors who fear stock market failure. You can learn more at SmeadCap.com or by calling your financial advisor. Welcome to a book with legs podcast. I'm Cole Smead. I'm the CEO and a portfolio manager here at Smead Capital Management. At our firm, we are readers and book junkies. It can be said that leaders are readers, and we believe books provide us a great source of information for filtering what is and isn't important for us as investors. Investing is the last great liberal art and the best way to spend a lifetime of learning. This podcast is for readers, thinkers, business-minded people, and investors who want to grow their knowledge from great authors and their writing. Charlie Munger often talks about using multiple mental models and analysis. Our aim for this podcast is to help listeners test Munger's theory in business, markets, and people. Hosting this episode along with me is our chairman and chief investment officer, my dad, Bill Smead. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So we're going to have uh, some fun today. Uh, this is a piece of history that I had never had uh, unwrapped and, and uh, told. And, and so I really appreciate it. We're going to discuss some of the modern history also of, of the dollar versus coins and the quantity theory of money through the lens of 17th century America. Dror Goldberg is joining us to talk about his book, Easy Money. American Puritans and the Invention of Modern Currency. Um, a little background on Dror. He's joining us today uh, from his home in, in, in Tel Aviv. Dror Goldberg is a senior faculty member in the Department of Management and Economics at the Open University of Israel. He is the co-founder and secretary of the Economic History Association of Israel. He has been published in the Journal of Money, Credit and Banking, the Journal of Monetary Economics, the Journal of Economic History, and the Journal of the European Economic Association. He received his Bachelor of Arts and Master of Arts degree of Economics, as well as a Bachelor's degree in Law from Tel Aviv University. He also has a Master's of Arts and a PhD from the University of Rochester in New York. Um, before we get started with uh, talking about easy money bills or anything that you enjoyed out of this book or things you're looking forward to on our discussion. It fabulously lays groundwork that I needed filled in, and I think you feel the same way. Yeah, I think I also think, and this is something we'll talk about later, uh, but it makes me think about the dollar system even differently as kind of the you know the the, the father of of all the modern currency. So, um, Dror, thank you for uh, joining Bill and me. Uh, we're excited to talk about your work. Thank you. So, to start us out, uh, the question we love to ask authors is, you know, what inspired you to write this incredible work? I did not plan to write a book about American history. Definitely, I didn't plan on that. I grew up with very high inflation. Kind of amuses me when Americans speak of the 70s as high inflation. <laughs> you know, it didn't even make it to 20%, I think. I grew up with a 450%. That's a 3% a week. That's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was a teenager. I didn't really know what what was happening. It didn't affect my business or anything. But I realized there was a lot of fuss about it. And then almost immediately when the government decided to kill it, it went down to 20%. And after a few more years, it converged to uh, normal levels. So that got me interested about uh, paper money, the power of government to decide uh, to have inflation or not to have it. And that brought me to study economics. And in economics, I began with the mathematical models of money, which is what people usually do in academia, yeah. in economics departments. And after, after I was done with the theory, I became interested in the history. 
and uh, <laughs> went down that rabbit hole, and it took me many years to emerge back. So you, you, in your introduction, you point out something that's prima facie and, and just true on its face. I'm going to quote your book. Money is therefore a prerequisite, not only for specialization, but also for urbanization and therefore advanced civilization. C can you uh, kind of simplify this idea? In other words, I, I get where you're going, but can you explain what you mean by that sentence? I mean that uh, we are still biological creatures. We have to eat every day and even a few times a day and we have to get food and if we don't have an easy way to obtain food uh, we are in trouble the easiest way to obtain food is uh, simply live in a village or hunt or something like that away mm -hmm. from cities cities rely on our uh, ability uh, the assured ability that we think we have that whatever good or service we produce uh, we will be able to get in return, uh, if not food directly, then something that could be immediately exchanged for food. If we don't get this uh, assurance, we are in trouble. So I will give uh, lectures and get, uh, I don't know, in return I will get uh, handles or uh, books. Well, that's not very useful if the grocery store will not accept candles and books when I try to buy food. So this uh, somewhat pathetic need for food uh, we humans have, that actually forces us to either live uh, away from cities or to live in cities that have money in some form. doesn't have to be physical money, but uh, something uh, like money or credit that uh, is related to money. That was my point. Mm. And without cities, you cannot have advanced civilization. Rory, in the book, I'm going to quote you here. It says, the need for money could lead to inventions, but it will not necessarily do so, unquote. You mentioned that Joel Marker argued, quote, history is full of losers that had the incentive to invent but failed. Ability makes the difference between winners and losers, unquote. We think the invention that has caused our paper dollar system has been taken for granted as other countries didn't succeed making this model. We believe this invention propelled us to the dollar system today. Is that fair in your assessment, or would you disagree with a statement like that? Um, yes, that, that's a fair statement, definitely. So in the book, you can actually see many cases, especially in England, the uh, 17th century, where military forces uh, stopped marching because of lack of pay. Mm -hmm. And it could have happened in Massachusetts as well. And the results in such cases were uh, mutiny, defection, plundering the the employer's own uh, people. And, uh, this was the standard thing because of uh, the increased military expenditures after the 16th century. So it could have happened in Massachusetts, but those Puritans were wiser and they came up with something that allowed them to pay soldiers even when they ran out of gold or silver coins. And uh, yeah, that became the standard for all the colonies and led uh, directly to the dollar system. Absolutely. Explain what siege money was to bring the lines of war and currency together. So uh, it happened sometimes in uh, European history that some town was under siege. Uh, that uh, terminology actually comes from uh, numismatics. They find these uh, really peculiar objects of odd shape and odd material that uh, existed only in a very brief period in one 
particular location, so they call it siege money. So during the war, you have a siege of some of some city, and they kind of have to get along. After everyone has hoarded the coins, the real coins, they have to come up with something different, uh, especially to pay the soldiers. So soldiers were normally uh, paid, and uh, this payment they were supposed to buy their own food. They didn't have the modern logistics of uh, military forces that we have today. So the soldiers needed pay. And in various uh, such cases in Europe and later in America, whoever was in charge in that particular location often came up with uh, some improvised solution to give the soldiers some objects with which they could go shopping. So that's uh, money. So using that line of logic, I mean, what you just made me think of, Doran, this is not in our script, were, were stimmy checks in the United States, was that just siege money, right? Because we were, we were under siege, we were under attack by a virus, and the only outcome was to just hand out whatever you could to fight what was going on, much like siege money was used. Is that a similar kind of thing that we just saw? Well, the stimulus checks were kind of more of the same. In numismatics, when they talk about siege money, they refer to a new type of uh, coin or something that looks like a coin, sure. especially for this occasion. But uh, so this is in numismatic terms. In economic terms, I guess it's I guess it's I guess it's fair. Yeah, I guess you can say that. Yeah, you you got me a new term. I'm not, because people call them stimulus checks or stimmies, as they were referred to affectionately here. And I'm going to start calling it siege money. And someone says, why do you say that? I'm going to immediately hand them a copy of your book. So um, one of the main principles in you know, uh, this discussion of how we got to modern currency um, is, the, is the principle of set-off or the idea of set-off, uh, which was you know, something that was being wrangled with even back during coinage in the Royal Mint. Can you explain set-off and why it was important to any contractual obligation in the, in the you know, 17th century? So set-off was one of the ways to settle debts that were denominated in normal units, like pounds and shillings, but it allowed you to cancel the debts without using coins. And not using coins had very large benefits, even in England, because coins were of uh, precious, precious metal, and they were worn and torn, and <laughs> sorry, they were just worn, and you know you could be you could be robbed if you had uh, too many coins, and there was a, a significant cost of uh, transferring many coins. So it was always better to settle things on paper, and set off was one of those ways. And that way you could just uh, get rid of most of the mutual debts if there was if these were uh, kind of uh, contracting parties that operated. Uh, together for a long period, and that was very useful. And this habit definitely made it to America, and it actually allowed the use of, let's say, the treasury's IOUs in tax payments, that is actually set off. So that was the whole point there in the 1690, maybe I'm getting ahead of time here, but uh, that allowed this uh, operation that did not require coin. So the basic idea came from England. Most of the, I mean, if you take this invention and you take it apart into its uh, smallest components, you find everything in England a century earlier. 
the brilliance of the Puritans was to put these things together to create something new. And that sure. happens quite often in inventions. Sure. Yeah, because I think you mentioned in your book that uh, Eng the parliament in, in England did not formalize the use of set-off until 1729, so much later, as you're pointing out, than the Puritans. Um, you also, I, I, I just, I found this very interesting. You discussed the kind of, I'll call it the spiritual relationship of money and contracts, because to your point, set-off is a contractual issue, um, and you, 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 you know, through the lens of these Puritans, you explain what credo and creed have to do with the framework uh, that contractual obligations and payments are, are made on. Can you explain how Puritans looked at these contracts? Uh, I do not understand much about uh, Puritan theology. I had to read some uh, in order to uh, understand the spirit of the time because they were very spiritual times. Sure. It was quite amazing. I mean, I'm Jewish. It was quite amazing uh, to me to see how much they used the contractual terminology. So they had a covenant with God. The covenant was the main word that they used. And it was all the time about obligation and contracts and all this commercial financial uh, terminology that I did not expect to see in religion. And, and it's possible that this made them, uh, I mean, these were most of them middle class people. Uh, they were very uh, accustomed to uh, trading at high levels, but I think this made the whole issue of um, contracts and obligations made it a bit more lively than other societies, something that I did not expect to see in the religion. That was kind of unusual. So I'm going to ask kind of a strange question off that because I think you're touching at a very interesting subject when you brought this up. Um, our modern system, even our modern system, relies on trust. You, you, you have to trust the system. You have to trust your counterparties. You know, this idea of covenant, it still holds true. So, you know, and so you mentioned you're Jewish. Um, you know, the faith that you have in the system, uh, it, you know, to the Puritan point is not dissimilar to the, the faith that you have in God. Do, do you think that, that that tied to faith in God um, has had a binding effect on the monetary system or the, I'll call it the paper currency system that we have today? Well, your paper money says in God we trust. So uh, maybe there is something <laughs> to it. <laughs> yeah. we, and by the way, I also think a really good point you point out is there was a, a religious zeal. There was a religious zeal among these Puritans to where, you know, to not uh, fulfill your obligation was immoral. And, and versus we don't have that same feeling of immorality. There is much more of a culture of, you know, uh, fake it till you make it. Or, you know, if I go broke, I go broke. Well, and, and these were massive risk takers. Yeah. I mean, that, that's one of the great things about your book is you get this, this incredible sense as you kind of walked through the various places that people landed in the United States. Uh, so we're, we're going to continue. we got a lot of good stuff to cover. You made a footnote about an unpaid debt of King Charles II. Today's sovereign, King Charles, then Prince Charles, uh, repaid the debt without interest for 453 pounds. Uh, he didn't pay 47,000 pounds with interest. Isn't this the problem from focusing on the government debt markets instead of paper currency? They aren't money and they'll get ruined by inflation and with some governments, you never get paid back? 
Uh, yeah, that's a problem. I mean, trusting the government uh, is kind of a tricky business. So the Puritans, they had, a, they had this covenant with God, and the paper money failed to circulate. At first, Pastor Cotton Mather actually said, well, this is our government. It's not England, it's our government. And they had a covenant with the government that was equivalent for them to the covenant with God. And it was you know, a covenant uh, the entire society, the, the, the church was a covenant among church members. Where, yeah, they trusted each other. It was, uh, to paraphrase, uh, I think it was Lincoln. It was the government uh, of the people, for the people, by the people. Oh. So definitely, I mean, it was also a very small community. So trust for them was very tangible. They actually knew the people that issued the money. That they knew their representatives, and the representatives knew them. I don't know if you could make something like that work, if you could invent something like that in a society of uh, 300 million people. You could with, you could with, with 50,000, well, I don't know, like 7,000 of them live in Boston, you could, you could pull it off. I'm not sure you could do it today, uh, invent something like that, such a very large and uh, far more uh, open society like you have today in the U.S. I wonder if there's 7,000 Puritans in Boston now. Well, yeah, by the way, Gerard, you're actually, you made me think of something when you're mentioning that. Um, think about the difference between that against, you know, let's just use Bitcoin as an example. You don't know anyone that owns it. <laughs> right, that's great. Yeah, that's a great analogy. I mean, Bitcoin can definitely work if uh, if we all knew each other and we all trusted each other. Yeah, that's a superb example, definitely. The problem with Bitcoin, you, you have these maybe, I don't know, a million supporters, but they are spread across the entire planet and they really don't know each other. Like, I don't know anyone who ever tried to use Bitcoin. I never saw a price tag in Bitcoin. Nobody ever offered me payment in Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah I mean, you're right to the point here, definitely. Reminds me of the tulip mania of 1636. Debentures were attempted as payment for soldiers. Teach our listeners what went wrong with this. So uh, giving soldiers debentures was uh, the normal routine. A soldier was discharged and received the, the treasury's IOUs, IOU, which was called a debenture. And he stated the entire debt of the treasurer to the soldier for the entire period of service. So that's something nice to have. It kind of reminds of a receipt given by the first goldsmiths in medieval Italy. And the problem is that you cannot really use it as money because if you talk about a long period of service, in this case it was three months, that's too big of an amount. It's too big of an amount to go to a grocery store or, well, let's face it, they had... They had more specialized stores back then. They had the baker, they had the shoemaker. Um, it's too much to take to one single store and expect the seller to accept. It's just uh, too much. Maybe if they had the Walmart back then, where you can buy literally everything, including food, then maybe you could uh, do your shopping with a single dimension. But uh, in terms of the, the shop structure they had back then, it was just uh, too large. So it couldn't function as money, even when they made it uh, legal tender for taxes. Just too big. So so that's kind of the answer to our next query. Exchequer orders were, during the second Anglo-Dutch War, 
uh, were tradable, interest-bearing bonds. You, you point out this was not paper money. Is that for the same reasons you just stated? Yes, it was too large. Uh, some, of, uh, some of it was uh, also uh, not uh, round denominations. That also makes it uh, difficult. And uh, they also had a problem there. They couldn't technically get too low denominations because they had the competition from the mint. The mint uh, was very strong politically and it wouldn't let anyone persistently get into its uh, range of denominations, which was up to five pounds. Well, and the, but the, the exchequer still had to record the owner, though, if I remember. There was a general ledger, I think you pointed out. And again, and that's, you know, if I hand Bill a $20 bill or I hand him a $100 bill, there's no record that's needed, right? There's just, there's, that's why, that's why drug dealers keep suitcases of $100 bills. There's no general ledger. And again, that was the same problem for uh, the exchequer then. And I would argue is Bitcoin's problem. There has to be a ledger. The problem is, is that ever worked? Right. So for the exchequer orders, that was an additional complication. Even when the denominations were low, such as one pound, and that rarely happened. So that was an extra complication. Uh, well, what's the problem with the ledger? In the exchequer orders, you had to uh, go to the exchequer physically in London and register it. That's a problem. I mean, that's, it's okay for financial instruments. Uh, for money, it's not practical. Sure. As for Bitcoin, the problem with the ledger, uh, well, there, there are different problems. Um, well, there is the cost. So they say that the transactions in Bitcoin are expensive both in dollar terms and in terms of energy. And there is the problem of, uh, you know, you're actually registering all your transactions and the police can actually uh, find out eventually who you are. So all your transactions are on record somewhere. Initially, criminals uh, thought they could get away with it so that nobody could uh, decipher this uh, ledger. But uh, actually, I spoke when I was in DC and I won't uh, disclose the... Uh, any more information, but someone who works in BC told me, yeah, we can actually know who these people are. <laughs> these stupid people that are actually registering uh, their transactions on ledgers, and yeah, we can figure it out eventually. It takes some time and effort, but we can do it. Sure. So different problems, but yes, uh, money needs to be anonymous to work perfectly. In the new uh, uh, country area, the land was tried as a backer of bank bills in a number of the various locations you mentioned where, where people came to this side of the pond, uh, but it failed too. What, what was the problem with having land stand behind the currency? So there was this uh, English idea to back paper money with land. Uh, in England, it never made it, probably because the, the land market there is so incredibly complicated. If you really want to punish someone, tell them to study traditional English land law. It's a nightmare. <laughs> and, and in America, it was all very simple. And they just came there and started from nothing and somehow got land from Native Americans. And that's it. They got the land. The complication was that, um, so specifically in Massachusetts, they tried twice to have paper money backed by land. And they ran into the problem that exactly at that time, England was uh, pressing hard on them, both on the um, political structure and the property that uh, emanated from it. 
to the right to have two land banks in 1680s. It was really, uh, I mean, this idea really fit America far better than England. So the idea was that you have a lot of property and you have uh, little liquidity. Uh, the profile was exactly that of the American uh, settler. And you could deposit your land title and get paper money in return from the bank that issued it. There was no other paper money. And paper money was in small denominations. So they tried this, but uh, and, uh, initially threatened and eventually did void all the land titles in Massachusetts. So that was the problem. The problem was not the ancient land law that uh, made it impossible for this idea to arise in England. The problem was uh, the political dominance of England. It was a very unfortunate coincidence that Massachusetts uh, Charter was uh, indicated exactly at that time in the 1680s. It might have worked. It just uh, it was just bad timing. And actually, in the 18th century, some of the colonies did not adopt Massachusetts legal tender paper money. They actually uh, employed a system of uh, land-backed paper money. That actually worked, but only in the 18th century. Mm. So you, you pointed out something that, you know, just on its face, I didn't think of, but um, uh, you talked about during the 17th century, even though these people were, these were intellectuals, this was during the scientific revolution, um, but they had some weird conspiracy theories, I'll call it, um, not dissimilar to what some bright people have today. Uh, they thought uh, a lot about things like witchcraft, demonology, and other weird subjects, um, that you point out in your book, uh, I liken it to hearing you know a brilliant technology uh, person then go off on a tangent about how we might plausibly have aliens as an example to today. But I guess, can you kind of explain about this phenomenon and do you think this helped kind of the imagination of the paper currency that we came to? Yes, so in the scientific revolution, they tried the... Um, to understand many phenomena which they thought uh, really existed, but only then they actually uh, succeeded in uh, proving some of them and understanding some of them. And some of them uh, ended up not being proved or being actually disproved. So there was a uh, gravity. We all know about uh, Galileo and Newton. There was uh, air pressure. So we had uh, Torricelli, uh, the theorist, who actually understood there was air pressure. There was uh, von Gericke who did the famous experiment uh, with the horses that tried to separate uh, a ball. Uh, you have the magnetism that uh, one Englishman actually tried uh, to understand and figured out that actually Earth was a big ball of iron. And you had astrology and you had witchcraft. For us, <laughs> these are two separate lists. One is the science, real facts, the other is nonsense. But they were still in the process of figuring it out. And for them, astrology was evidently a true false. And same with the witchcraft. So believing in witches was not something uh, of uh, crazy people or for, uh, let's say, the, the poor uh, parts of society. Actually, that was top scientific activity. And at uh, Harvard, you had people, uh, the best case is uh, the same pastor, Cotton Meadow. So he was actually kind of an exorcist two years before uh, he wrote the pamphlet. 
Yeah. First, before uh, writing a pamphlet about uh, paper money and uh, disclosing there that he had uh, theoretical conversations about money with Treasurer, his father-in-law, he was actually an exorcist. He tried to uh, <laughs> cure a family of witchcraft and he wrote a best-selling book about it just two years earlier. <laughs> two, two years later, he was one of the main forces behind the Dorsalian witchcraft tribes. Yeah. So that was part of the same uh, intellectual phenomena that was Harvard College. And I mentioned that uh, Newton, Newton wrote his famous book just uh, three years before the uh, mine main event in 1687. Mm-hmm. And he spent as much time about uh, biblical prophecies and um, alchemy. So they were still in the process of figuring it out. Mm-hmm. Now, did it, did it help them understand the paper money? So, um, well, actually, uh, one scholar actually came up with this idea. And I quoted her in the book, uh, Michelle Burnham. She's actually a literary scholar. And she thinks that there was some uh, spiritual uh, metaphysical relation. So Cotton Mather's uh, main offense was that he, cons- he uh, advised the judges to send witch trials to, um, to use uh, what they call the spectral evidence. It was uh, dreams. They afflicted people, they, uh, they could submit it as evidence, but uh, they had dreams that their neighbors were tormenting them. Just dreams, it's all in their heads. And uh, this uh, literary scholar, Michelle Burnham, said, well, that's pretty much like he, two years earlier, he told me, the people in Massachusetts, forget about the physical character of money as you're used to thinking about it, the gold or silver. Think about uh, the spirit behind money. The spirit behind money is that it kind of uh, circulates magically between all of us, uh, between us and from us to the treasury, and from the treasury back to the government's creditors. That's the real spirit or the spectral appearance of uh, money. It's not about the coin. Forget about the physical appearance. And look at the essence. They teach some pretty weird things in I was going to say that nowadays, I, yeah, so. to, to your point I mean Vora, as you're saying that I'm thinking wow that requires a lot of faith <laughs> <laughs> so let's let's move let's move to currencies tried before they arrived at the dollar wampum worked far better for trade explain what wampum was and why it caused the mind to imagine what could be for money inventions so wampum was a well, it was the seashells produced by the Native Americans in northern areas. And it was definitely jewelry for the Native Americans. Whether it was money or not among them, that's uh, disputed. Uh, the colonists and the today economists would say, uh, yes, it was money. You could buy everything with it. Anthropologists uh, disagree because for them, uh, by definition, um, Traditional societies could not use money. That's an invention of uh, the evil white man. So they kind of uh, categorically rule out this possibility. But uh, in the book, I don't have to get into this uh, debate. The main point is that uh, colonists in the northern colonies decided to adopt wampum as money for themselves. So they did not see any aesthetic value about wampum. They did not use it as jewelry. 
but they knew that there were all these uh, Native Americans nearby who would always accept wampum from them in exchange for beaver furs. That was actually the economic foundation of all the northern colonies from uh, the Dutch colony of New Netherlands that became New York on the way up to Canada. So it all relied on buying beaver furs from the Native Americans. Uh, so that's how actually the northern colonists started using money, which for them had no intrinsic value. So for them, she looked at intrinsic value, it was more like paper money and less like the silver coins they were used to. So I think this might have opened the door, at least uh, intellectually, to the idea that you could use an object that has no intrinsic value for you under some conditions. So unlike Bitcoin, which is uh, purely speculative, there was some economic foundation here. There were these Native Americans nearby who did value it uh, for uh, aesthetic uh, reasons and would always give you something valuable for it. It was kind of like redeeming, uh, later on, redeeming paper money for gold. Uh, the colonists knew that they could practically, not legally, but practically, redeem wampum for beaver firms. So it was kind of simple. Maybe nobody realized it in real time. I don't have a smoking gun where people say that. Maybe that's uh, my ex-post uh, reading of the facts. Sure. The causality, but it's possible. So I mentioned it. I figured it would be better to mention it than ignore it. So let's talk about the structure of the Massachusetts Bay uh, Company. Um, was it a traditional structure for a royally chartered company? Um, also, was it common for a young company one year into its existence to have its governor you know, live in the colony uh, versus be in London? So the structure was kind of typical. Trading companies uh, in England were less than 100 years old. And the ability to trade in stocks and to have a stock market, that was uh, even uh, much younger. happened uh, in the United Provinces, the, the Netherlands, in the 1600, actually. So this was all something new, but there were definitely various uh, companies beforehand. Uh, there was the Levant Company, Moscow Company, Bermuda Company, Georgina Company, and they kind of, because it was new, they tried to kind of uh, play around with the ingredients of uh, the structure of the companies, but they definitely had a few uh, basic features, and one of the basic features was that you had a governor. In Virginia, they called it a treasurer for some reason, and you had this uh, kind of, a, let's, say, let's say, a board of directors, and you had the larger Assembly, assembly of uh, shareholders, and they had basically all the authority to do everything. And uh, all the colonial charters actually specified that the company resided in England. And for some reason, the Massachusetts Charter lacked this line. Maybe it was on purpose. The Massachusetts Charter is uh, extremely long when you compare it to others. It is very repetitive. It is very annoying to read, actually. And uh, maybe it was on purpose. So that's kind of a conspiracy theory. Uh, the only colony, the only company, trading company whose charter did not mention England, 
actually fled England one year later. So maybe it's not a coincidence. Mm. And it came as a total surprise to uh, the royal court at Whitehall that uh, they relocated entirely the governor with uh, some of the directors and the seal of the company. That was a total surprise. And they even made some attempts in England to kind of call it off, to abolish the charter and then finish the entire experiment because they did not expect it to happen. They did not plan to have a Puritan refuge. They wanted it to be just a commercial company based in London, uh, very close to the king. What was unique to the Puritan communities of the Massachusetts Bay Colony that wasn't true in other colonies like Virginia? In terms of uh, constitution, society? Uh, yeah, the, the, the community, because I think you do a really good job of pointing out um, you know, how important like pastoral ministry was in the context of the community, which wasn't true in other parts like Virginia. And the tobacco dominating things in Virginia. Right. So Virginia was uh, basically a colony of uh, poor people, even before the slaves arrived. There were just these uh, planters who were disper um, dispersed geographically because of the properties of uh, tobacco as a plant. Uh, there were no cities throughout the century. Jamestown was just an, let's say, administrative uh, village. There were no cities, no uh, serious middle class, no community life. You had these isolated plantations, uh, the master, uh, his family, and all these uh, servants and later slaves. And you didn't need to pay wages to these servants and slaves. And not much... Uh, production of pretty much anything other than tobacco. They got everything they needed from uh, European ships. And Massachusetts was much more a normal society. It was really like uh, a New England. So you had these villages and you had uh, one big town that was Boston. And the society was uh, um, very, uh, what's the word? Society was very close uh, spiritually. Many of these villages were just uh, replications of old England uh, communities that migrated uh, together. Uh, they were close uh, geographically. It is uh, like a real village life. And they, if you had some uh, non-agricultural uh, profession, um, like a shoemaker, then you went to Boston and that was fine. So it was more like England and London. It was very, very similar. Only smaller, which and uh, and um, homogenic in terms of uh, religion, which made it actually a better version of England in terms of uh, the cohesiveness of the society. Sure, it was far better than Virginia in, the, in that sense. So uh, Massachusetts did make a run at a coin. You noted that it was accepted by most English colonies. And thank, if I remember correctly from your notes off the top of my head, Montserrat made it illegal to not accept the Massachusetts coin. Uh, but obviously there was that tension of minting in light of the king. Um, obviously King Charles II, uh, uh, you know, uh, being as an example. But it also gave you a discount on taxes if it was used for that. This discount idea continued on even to the bill. What was was the failure of the coin just the lack of ability to co create a large quantity? Uh, 
they did have a problem of uh, quantity of coin. They did not have a lot of coin uh, going into the Massachusetts Mint. According to experts who investigated uh, the mint, the output was fairly small. And they had all these other problems that England uh, did not allow them to mint coin. And the coin was so useful throughout English America that other colonies uh, adopted it. So uh, that was a problem. They gave uh, discount tax payments to anybody who used the coin because they wanted to encourage tax payments in the coin. The alternative was usually grain. And as much as they wanted to have the coins circulating in the economy, they also wanted the treasury to have a more, uh, uh, to have a more convenience when collecting taxes. The treasurer, uh, in his uh, capacity as the financial officer of the colony, did not want to, uh, to have uh, all these uh, storage facilities for coal. It was all at his expense, and it was extremely inconvenient to have uh, all these uh, facilities. So he preferred to have coins and uh, the legislature uh, went along with it. So if you paid your taxes in coin, you got a serious discount on your tax payments. And that definitely helped the treasurer. It did not help the circulation of uh, coin sure. in the private economy. War debts always caused monetary issues for government, including the Massachusetts Bay Colony. You have a chart of the explosion of debt in the 1670s in your book, and then another chart of the taxes in 1689 and 1690. Do higher taxes that follow war give us a roadmap for the journey ahead for investors? In other words, with all the war, with all the debt built up from COVID, let's just call it, isn't that probably the best signal of future tax increases? Uh, yes. So, uh, yeah, I mean, like you said before about the siege money, we can treat COVID as an attack, not by humans, but by virus. And um, yes, you have all these high debts. Now the question is, what do you do with it? Uh, do you default it? <laughs> do you default on it like with the um, you know, debt ceiling? Do you monetize it with inflation? Uh, the inflation itself actually erodes the real value of the debt. Uh, or do you increase taxes? So uh, definitely there is some room for alarm. Absolutely, you have to be careful once you have these debts. You have to be careful in real time. Uh, what to do about it uh, as investors, I'm not sure, but uh, you definitely... We, we have some pretty strong opinions uh, associated with too many people with too much money chasing yeah, too yeah, few we, goods. Yeah, we think, it, to your point, I think we can already see the hand's been tipped, it's been monetized. Let me, let me jump to Edmund Andros, who was who came in as the, um, as the governor of the Massachusetts Bay Colony by royal creed. He, he came in as the governor, and he was the outsider. You know, he wasn't part of the, the uh, Massachusetts. He came from London, and he went on a full-scale attack of private land, um, arguing that they were nothing more than crown lands. Um, at that time, as you point out, in both England and then in Massachusetts, land was really the sign of wealth in those societies. Um, I looked at this as you know he you know he he was really in, uh, he he was in good favor with the king and the court so he was coming from nobility in some respects um, and yet at the same time he wanted to uh, redistribute wealth let's call it w was he just a liberal ahead of his time in kind of a soak the rich Bernie uh, Sanders tax I mean Bernie you know, Sanders w was he a Bernie Sanders way ahead of his time 
Uh, no, he, uh, he just wanted uh, to make money uh, for himself and for his cronies. He did not want to redistribute the land to the poor. Okay. He wanted to uh, redistribute it to uh, either his cronies or to the original owners uh, if they only paid high enough fees. That was it. He just okay. wanted the, the red tape. He just wanted to get a, an increase for his salary in that method. and. Uh, Actually, he took the trick from uh, King Charles I, who did something similar in the 1630s when he had a dispute with Parliament and he couldn't collect taxes. He also went after some land titles, and he, all, all he really wanted was to get a fees or fines if your title wasn't perfect. So it was an old trick. Gotcha. Gotcha. Sound, sounds kind of like a lot of the stock-based compensation in public companies today. <laughs> um, uh, Jacques de Mule did, did something very inventive as the regent, uh, the French regent in Can Canada. As is always true, necessity is the mother of invention. Teach our listeners about his card money that he created and why he created it. So that was uh, the importation into North America of the siege money that we discussed earlier. So his colony was basically under siege by Native Americans. He had some disputes with them. And France sent him many soldiers without coin to pay the soldiers. And uh, still, like in the Middle Ages, soldiers relied on payments, not on uh, the government providing uh, food and shelter for them. So he had these debts to uh, soldiers. And in order to keep them uh, from a mutiny and from dissolving, from just disappearing into the private economy, he had to pay them. He didn't have coin. He knew that coins were supposed to arrive from France. Um, so he decided to issue money. Unlike Massachusetts, he didn't have a mint. Unlike Massachusetts, he didn't have a printing press. So he took playing cards uh, that were made from, uh, well, just paper, basically. Maybe a bit uh, hard paper. And uh, wrote on the back the nominations and signed and sealed. That's it. Now you have paper money made of cards. <laughs> and, and just like siege money in Europe, he said two things. First of all, when the coins arrive from France, uh, we'll give you coins for this uh, card money. Second, all the sellers have to accept this money or else. Because we are on the siege. We're not going to play games here. <laughs> we just have to give soldiers food once the entire colony is uh, doomed. So. That was it, just importing the siege money idea into North America uh, to a Massachusetts uh, neighborhood. That was important. Uh, if anybody in Massachusetts was not aware of the siege money idea, by 1685, when it happened, they uh, became familiar with it. Another interesting character of your book is Elisha Hutchinson, a man named after an Old Testament prophet. Explain him to our audience and how important his... But also the, the, the blood lineage that he came from was just interesting and, history. And, and rounded background. Ta tell us about Elisha. So Elisha is not uh, well known to colonial historians today. He was never a governor. He was not involved in the, any serious outrage, but his family was. So his grandmother was Anne Hutchinson, a religious reformer, maybe the first American feminist. She was uh, banished from Massachusetts and uh, co-founded Rhode Island. His grandson, 
Thomas Hutchinson, who was the last royal governor of uh, Massachusetts, and was practically also banished by the people right before the revolution. So <laughs> this colony, I call it a, a, sorry, this dynasty, I call it a dynasty of troublemakers, even more so when you go to their uh, roots in England. So they descend from King Edward I of England, who was uh, quite a nasty character. And if you go uh, in history to the more uh, recent times, um, Elisha Hutchinson's descendants include the presidents FDR and uh, the Bush presidents. So quite a dynasty relating the, the presidents to uh, royalty over 800 years. And within the colonial period, quite a, an unusual dynasty. And Elisha Hutchinson was just in the middle. And, and I was interested in him because he led the committee that issued paper money. You would expect the colonies uh, treasurer to do this. The treasurer was in the committee that issued the paper money, but he was listed second. And in the history of Massachusetts committees, and I looked at all of them, hundreds of them, this was extremely unusual. So it had some significance that he was first. It was not a coincidence. And so I wrote an entire chapter about him, his biography, but it wasn't just the argument that, well, he led the operation, let's know him better. The idea was uh, to try to use his biography to explain what made Massachusetts legislators different. Mm -hmm. Because he, he was not just the head of the committee that issued paper money, he was one of the councillors who was member of the executive. He was also a, a legislator, because the executive was also like the Senate, was the upper house of the legislature. He was also, uh, well, so that was his uh, role, his main role at that time. The point I'm making is that at the same time, he was also uh, the commander of Boston's militia. He was also the chief tax uh, commissioner of Boston. He was also one of the biggest taxpayers in Boston as a merchant. He was a large seller of goods as a merchant. So, so Dror, was it just that he gave, in other words, what you're getting at is he brought uh, the term heft, right? He brought heft every, to, to every the, or gravitas to the to uh, that order. Yeah, he could he could understand money through multiple lenses. Uh, is really what you're getting at. Yes. I, so one thing was the prestige of him and uh, his fellow merchants when they issued this uh, new type of money. But uh, more than that, uh, he and his colleagues, uh, it's not just about him, he and his colleagues could actually understand the bigger point about money. So today, if you have a, a legislator in the US or most democracies, I guess they're just former lawyers, but they just take this position as uh, legislators and they know what they do with money or in finance as, as lawyers and as taxpayers. But um, Hutchinson, he was both a, a tax collector and he was a commander of many of these uh, soldiers and he was a taxpayer himself. He could see the entire big picture that what you really needed here was not taxpayers paying uh, silver coins to the treasury, then the treasury paying silver coins to the soldiers. Mm. What you really needed was some way of uh, uh, settling the debt, is the uh, multiple debts to the treasury and from the treasury. 
and you could do it uh, very simply. You could take some object, have the treasury give it to the soldiers. Soldiers use it to buy from the sellers, who, as taxpayers, return it to the treasury. So that this a uh, circle, this uh, circulation of money, literally money circulating between all these uh, uh, nodes. And uh, he was there. He was in all these nodes. He did not have to think what uh, these, what they would think about it, whether they would want to use it. He was in all these places at the same time at that moment. So he knew he could make it work. In December 1690, the Massachusetts court passed an order for printing, quote, bills, unquote. You have four important points for what they had in the preamble of this order. What were those? So in the preamble, uh, they say uh, four things. And this it was important that uh, they were in a difficult situation. They were between uh, a rock and a hard place. On the one hand, they had to please the soldiers. They had to give the soldiers something, some tangible object with which the soldiers can go shopping. Otherwise, they could uh, mutiny. On the other hand, because the king did not allow them to issue money and definitely not uh, force anyone to use it, they had, they, they had to make this object not look too much like money. So already in the preamble, they do uh, four things. First of all, they say that for this entire financial mess they're in, uh, it wasn't for them, it was for England. It was part of a, a much wider Anglo-French war. And they got into this mess because they tried to increase the English uh, uh, possession of uh, lands in North America. They tried to occupy French Canada. They all did it for the king. It wasn't for them. That was one thing. Another thing they said, uh, well, we have these debts to the soldiers and uh, we contracted these debts. That's a, that's a sacred obligation. We talked uh, before what was the meaning of contracts. And we had to solve this problem. We cannot just uh, default. That's uh, impractical, it's immoral. And uh, they also mentioned that uh, there were various types of creditors who needed to be paid. So there were uh, the soldiers themselves. There were some people who paid uh, their property, for example, the ships. There were other people who provided the expedition with food and other items that could be used in the expedition. And uh, the problem was not that uh, they had a, a problem of money in general in the colony. The problem was that they lacked money in that particular moment in order to pay soldiers. Mm. So these were the uh, critical components of this operation. They kind of uh, apologize and explain both to the king and to the soldiers why they had to come up with this uh, new device. And then they try to play down as if it wasn't uh, something very extraordinary. Yeah, to your point, because they weren't coining, which is what a mint did. They were actually producing bills, which in our current modern structure is actually a call on the treasury, not the government. It's the treasury, uh, which was different than obviously the royal mint. To your point, you, you, um, uh, I think it was in the following chapter. You discuss how 1692 
was kind of the finality of this because they did make adjustments in 1692 to these bills. Um, I think some of the things you uh, noted, and I wanted to make sure that, that I, I caught all these correctly. Um, uh, first off, you have some great, great uh, uh, dialogue from Increase Mather and John Blackwell on the bills and, and their dis discourse and dialogue about it. Um, and then the modifications that followed allowed, they went from 7,000 pounds of bills in the original 1690 proclamation to an unlimited quantity, quantity which that sounds familiar. Um, I, I know that system. Um, uh, and then they continued to give a discount on taxes, which they had done prior in coins. Um, and, uh, and I think very important, and I want you to mention this, um, the new governor of the colony, Sir William, uh, Sir William Phipps, uh, as, as, uh, as you argue, gave it this idea of ling legal tender. Can you, can you explain that legal tender idea? Well, when they issued coins until the 1680s, they did not just issue coins, they made the coins legal tender. Legal tender means that you can discharge any monetary obligation with the object that is declared legal tender. It haunts for taxes, uh, but it also haunts for private debts. And that was a source of uh, complaints by English merchants who expected to be paid in English silver coin and were instead paid in a debased Massachusetts coin. So that was the problem. So England was upset not only that they minted silver coins, but that they forced creditors to accept these coins in uh, discharging debts. So in 1690, when they had to come up with payment to soldiers, they avoided it. They did not force the money on anyone, not on uh, spot sellers like in Canada, and not even on the... Uh, um, contractual debtors, they forced the money only on themselves. And so that was legal tender for taxes. And they did this because they awaited the king's decision about their charter. They wanted their old charter restored, or they wanted to get the new charter, and the following year they did get the new charter. And once they got the new charter, they no longer had to be um, and to behave uh, nicely towards England. They could practically do whatever they, they wanted. So they upgraded these new bills to make them not only legal tender for taxes, but also legal tender for debts. Mm. Making something legal tender for debts is very useful in society, not for monetary reasons, but for um, judicial reasons. You don't want uh, uh, parties to contracts to bother courts all the time about which object can uh, discharge debts. If you owe someone $10 today and you offer them $10 in potatoes, well, can the creditor uh, um, refuse to accept $10 in potatoes? So it's, uh, it can be a source of uh, never-ending uh, um, judicial disputes. So every early modern society, definitely modern society, always wanted to designate some objects as legal tender for debt, at least to prevent all this um, waste of time in courts. Because the private economy, obviously, uh, even back then, it totally relied on contracts and credits, and you had to make it uh, function properly without never-ending lawsuits. Yeah, I think um, to your point on being able to use it for, obviously, debts and taxes, 
Um, I think the the best theme, uh, one of the best themes that people can take out of your book is how powerful um, taxes are on the value of paper money. The fact that it's what's accepted. I can't pay my taxes in Bitcoin, for example, which gives huge power to the the, the dollar bills we have today. You also uh, quote uh, Benjamin Franklin early in the book, uh, kind of setting the stage for this, which is that you know there's two things you can't get past. It's death and taxes, which shows you the power of, of that concept. Um, let's see, Drawer, I was going through my notes here. Uh, there's a lot of things we didn't talk about. Uh, we didn't talk about things like the Virginia company and how you know the stranger coming in with the ship could cause trouble for coinage because they would export the coins. And um, there's other, we didn't talk much, we didn't really talk at all about John Blackwell. We didn't talk about the, you know, the effectively the the importing of citizens in Massachusetts Bay being a big business. So I, I'd love to just kind of throw it out to you. Um, what, uh, what, what didn't we talk about today that you, you do think needs to be mentioned to our audience? Okay. So um, one thing is that uh, the Puritans were really different colonists. Um, now, I have no bias here. I'm a complete stranger. I mean... <laughs> Only someone coming from outer space would be more of an outsider. Sure. I don't have I don't have any bias here towards any region or religion. Uh, not even towards Harvard. Usually when I email people at Harvard, they never reply. So <laughs> I have no <laughs> bias here. Yeah. Uh, but they were really different. Uh, Massachusetts was uh, a different colony. It was the mercantile, financial, and intellectual center of English America. They had the, the biggest uh, community of merchants. They had Harvard College, which was uh, the only college at that point in English America. It was a different colony. The witchcraft thing, uh, so it can somehow be related to the point, as we discussed earlier, but it was definitely not uh, the most uh, distinguishing feature of this society. It's kind of a red herring, if you ask me. Uh, it was a different society. It's not a coincidence that it became one of the centers of the American Revolution many years later. It was different in many ways. So that's one thing. Another important thing is uh, the role of uh, regulation. I think that's a big uh, part of the book. So Almost all these uh, developments in Massachusetts can be traced to regulation. Why did these very unusual people, uh, very unusual immigrants, even made it to America? Well, regulation of religion in England. Why couldn't they issue their own coins in the first few years? Because of regulation of coinage in England. Only the king could do it. Okay. Uh, then they minted the, their own money when uh, there was no royalty in England. Okay, then the king comes back and he regulates the mint out of existence. Then he regulates uh, the polity out of existence. Uh, the new dictator from England regulates land ownership out of existence. Uh, so you have regulation all over the place, kind of uh, driving the process uh, all the time. and. In the very moment that they had to issue this new type of money, you had some of these regulations uh, playing a significant role. They could not, they still could not issue anything that looked too much like money. They still could not issue anything backed by land because that was regulated. 
so that was a very important part of the story. The water regulation itself, obviously related to uh, the, the Latin or the religious, yes, um, it was created in the 17th century. It was becoming a very important force. So that's a that's kind of a dominant force in the story. And uh, in one of the concluding chapters, I say, uh, regulator beware. So whenever you, I think, whenever you have regulations, you have the regulator in the best case, uh, looking at the, at the at the potential benefits, looking at the potential uh, negative side effects, weighing these things, and if the benefits outweigh the costs, then you go for it. I think we should have a slightly different approach. You should have the benefits uh, vastly and definitely outweigh the costs because there is this uh, risk premium that you need to add on the side of the costs. These are the costs that you cannot even imagine. These are the unexpected costs who will definitely be there, but we're not smart enough to uh, predict them in advance. Sure. So don't cool. just do a balance. Make it a very decisive balance. Yeah. yeah. Cole, Cole, I'd like to just mention to our listeners how what a wonderful blind spot this book fills for both economic history, uh, monetary history. It's it just it, well, it was revolutionary a- history to, to Drawer's point. Um, you can understand. I mean, if you look at the the charter and the tension, uh, it, it, it's surprising that we didn't have revolution in the 17th century yeah. instead of finally having it in the 18th century. And Drawer, I think. I think as I think about American history and the bedrock of the revolution, I now will think a hundred years prior, yeah. which is something I, to your point, it's a blind Fil- spot. It's short-sightedness yes. um, on the part. Um, this has just been a superb conversation drawer. Um, I was going to ask you, wh- where, where, can, where can our listeners and our audience follow your work and follow you online going forward? I guess the best place would be Twitter. Um, I just joined Twitter a year ago. Nice. And, uh, I'm, I'm still very active there, only to uh, to tell people about the book. <laughs> I had yeah. no interest in Twitter beforehand. And I have a, a website with updates about uh, podcasts like yours and the uh, short articles uh, that are like, kind of uh, spread across the internet uh, yeah. relating to the book. So www.drawgoldberg.com. Uh, you can find the uh, some uh, things that all the time, like uh, like a link to your podcast when it's up. Yeah, and then and then what what's your Twitter handle, Drawer? Uh, just my name, Drawer okay. Goldberg. If you can figure it out, I'll write my name. Awesome. But it makes your website and your Twitter handle really easy. Well, so they're not uh, going to mix that up with the other Drawer Goldberg, yeah. are they? Um, Drawer, this has been a blast. Um, to our podcast listeners, go make the investment to buy Easy Money. Drawer Goldberg gives a wonderful history of the financial innovations that America tinkered with, not out of arrogance, uh, but out of necessity and political ingenuity. I also believe his book lends the idea of why the dollar system is so powerful. It was the granddaddy of them all from a paper currency perspective. Um, Drawer, thank you again for joining us. Uh, We've had a lot of fun with you. If you enjoyed our discussion uh, with Drawer on his book, Um, Go to Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a review, rating, a recommendation for other podcast listeners out there. Um, For our audience, if you have a great book that you'd like to recommend, like Drawers, email podcast at smeetcap.com. That's podcast at smeetcap.com. You can also send suggestions to us at our Twitter handle, at smeetcap. Thank you for joining us for a Book With Legs podcast. 
We look forward to the next episode. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to A Book With Legs, a podcast brought to you by Smead Capital Management. The material provided in this podcast is for informational use only and should not be construed as investment advice. You can learn more about Smead Capital Management and its products at smeadcap.com or by calling your financial advisor.